Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre was one of the most influential thinkers of the last century. His death in 1980 left many people feeling bereft of political guidance. A BBC documentary about Sartre, The Road to Freedom, gave a sense of that in the following clip. Madame, Mademoiselle, Monsieur, bonsoir. Des dizaines de milliers de personnes ont rendu un dernier hommage à Jean-Paul Sartre. When Sartre was buried on the 19th of April 1980, over 50,000 people followed the coffin and millions watched on television. No philosopher had ever had a bigger following. When he died, somebody um, said, now that he died, we've lost a, a compass because we will not be able to say to ourselves when something important happens, what does Sartre think about it? You know, an ethical compass. One of the main political and ethical questions that he addressed in his work was the colonial relationship between Western countries and the global South. From his own country's brutal war in Algeria to the US invasion of Vietnam, the renowned philosopher spoke out fiercely against the crimes of empire. Our guest today for a conversation about Sartre is Oliver Gloag. Oliver teaches French and Francophone studies at the University of North Carolina and he's the author of Albert Camus, A Very Short Introduction. When did Sartre first begin to take an interest in the question of the French colonies in particular? And what were his first public interventions on that subject? Well, it's complicated because the first public reaction to France's colonial war in Indochina, it took place in December 1946, basically after it began in November 46. And it took place in Les Temps Modernes, Sartre's publication, in an editorial. And remember, Sartre was the director of this publication, and the editorial was unsigned. And in this editorial, a comparison was made between the French army and its role in Indochina and the German army and its role in France. Um, and it was a absolute condemnation of France's intervention, uh, an attack on France's hypocrisy, because France originally stated that the reason to intervene in Indochina was to fight the Japanese army, which was not the case. Even though Sartre may not have written the editorial, he was attacked by um, a very important figure in French literature and French intellectual circles, uh, François Mauriac, who was sort of an anti-colonial rightist, right-wing author, and was extremely shocked at uh, the comparison between France and the occupying army. And uh, Sartre responded with Merleau-Ponty in another editorial um, that was titled, I believe, SOS Indochina, and really taking a stand, again, and echoing what later Aimé Césaire will, will do in his discourse against colonialism, which is to say that there should be a refusal of creating a hierarchy of massacres and occupations. And it is legitimate to compare what colonial powers have done to colonized people and colonized countries with what Germany has done in Europe, uh, where de facto Germany colonized France. So that was the, the first, albeit not entirely public, commitment 
Then later on, as, as we'll see, he wrote uh, a very important presentation for Présence Africaine, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. In 1948, also wrote a preface uh, to an anthology of Black poetry. The first actual public intervention in his name, I think really we could say comes in 1953, or maybe even 1951. So what happens um, at that stage is it's called the Affaire Henri Martin, so the Henry Martin Affair. And briefly put, Henri Martin was a soldier in the French Marine, uh, was a resistor, and he joins the French army, believing the claims of the French government that the war in Indochina is in fact a war against the Japanese imperialism. And it turns out it's not. And he serves. And when he gets back to France in 1950, this military man starts to become a militant against the war as a military man. And he gets arrested and sent to jail for five years. So Sartre signs a petition along members of the Communist Party and communist intellectuals against um, this imprisonment. He goes to visit the president. And eventually, uh, Henri Martin is freed uh, under popular pressure in 1953. Now, uh, there is a book published in 1953 where Sartre writes the summation. Sartre's piece is right there up in front. So it's L'Affaire Henri Martin, signed by Sartre. And he compares, uh, he attacks the, the colonial enterprise, the French judicial system, and therefore here places himself alongside Voltaire, who defends who defended Protestants during the French monarchy, and uh, alongside Zola, who defended this Jewish uh, officer of the French army who was wrongly prosecuted. Uh, so this really, I would say, is his first commitment uh, with respect to anti-colonialism. But in Indochina, the grim struggle continues. By 1950, the French position was beginning to look desperate, despite the clear sympathies of British newsreel commentators. Withdrawing their advanced troops, the French command decide to form flying columns to deal more effectively with enemy attacks. But everywhere, the troops encounter blown-up bridges and roads which have been mined as they strive to quell the lawless outbreaks and establish order once again. But it's not all success for the communists. The gallant French troops recapture a fort after hard fighting and work against time to erect defences against the next red attack. The crucial battle of the war came in 1954, at Dien Phu. Overhead, fighters make constant strikes, strafing the advancing rebels. Today, Dien Bien Phu is a human dam trying to stem the red tide that threatens to engulf Southeast Asia. The dam broke shortly afterwards, although it wasn't long before the US picked up the colonial baton in the name of anti-communism. How did Sartre relate to the movement of negritude and figures such as M. A. César and Leopold Senghor in Senegal? This is a huge connection here. And it starts with in 47, in the spring of 47, where, where Sartre basically, uh, there is a project, this publication called Présence Noire. And in Présence Noire, which is founded in 47, and it's, it's not Présence Noire, I'm sorry, it's African Presence. It's a publication founded by Alun Diop that becomes the main voice for Negritude. And in his presentation, Sartre takes the task the hypocrisy of the metropolitan French, the French who live in France, uh, who think themselves tolerant and understanding because they socialize with black men in the metropole. But South asks rhetorically, what about those in the colonies? What about the exploitation that takes place in these colonies and the misery there? It's one thing to call yourself anti-racist, 
but what is going on in the colonies. And so he writes there, he focuses on the concrete oppression that takes place outside the metropole. He speaks of the salaries. He speaks of the price of beef. He speaks of, of the wealth that's generated by those colonies to the metropole. So he's attentive to living conditions. And he says, you know, just accepting a few blacks in the metropole as part of an attempt to repress or negate the ongoing economic oppression of exploitation of African men and women in the colonies won't do. So here he, he expresses the fact that racism is not just the only aspect of colonialism. There's also class. And that's a, an important theoretical problem for South. I mean, it'll become, you know, which came first in a way. And he also speaks to the fact that uh, there shouldn't be condescendence by authors such as him to look at this emerging negritude, this emerging poetry, that it's not about uh, living up to French culture, but it's about turning the French language in different directions and really injecting sort of a revolutionary and political blood in this, in this language and giving it new meaning. So that's uh, the, the first. And, and in it, in Présence Africaine, uh, on the masthead, there's also Richard Wright. So making a connection with African-Americans and African authors who are Francophone. Uh, so South was, was, was instrumental in the launching and lent his prestige for that. Now, the other big intervention, of course, was uh, his preface to Leopold Senghor's anthology of Black and Malgache, Madagascarian uh, poetry. And that's, that's a huge moment for South. Where, what does he do? He, he writes this preface, and this is still Negritude, right? That was a national liberation had not taken the importance, both in terms of numbers and force, that they would later take on. So South is sort of a, a relative you know, newcomer to politics. He's writing in a landscape where independence of colonies in Africa is still a hope, not yet an ongoing armed struggle. So he writes about poetry. He begins the essay by challenging the white paternalistic expectation of exoticism when they open this book. And he preemptively calls out their surprise of the poems, their surprise of the poems, and their discomfort at the realization that their look, the white people's look, is subverted as they're now the object of black gazes. With this reversal, Sartre, he mocks the white reader's sudden realization that they have a race, that they too can be object of a gaze, a black gaze. And I'll just quote what he says here. He says, here are black men standing, looking at us, and I hope that you, like me, will feel the shock of being seen. For 3,000 years, the white man has enjoyed the privilege of seeing without being seen. So I think that that's the opening passage here, uh, which which is sort of you know in its sense crucial and and it really grounds South's perspective. He is not um, he is not looking at this from a, from a paternalist perspective. The preface compares the status of Europeans in the world to that of French aristocrats under the old regime. He refers to them as Europeans of divine, divine rights, and announces prophetically that the cultural movement of Nicritude is going to expand into a political force that's going to topple the old colonial order, just as the institution of monarchy has been toppled through Europe. This is a, a, crucial, a crucial moment. He cites 44 passages uh, of, of you know, all these poems, the poems by Senghor, by Diop, by Césaire himself, and, and he, he looks at it, he gives a glimpse of what Nicritude is fighting against, uh, the essay goes beyond an immediate description and denunciation of racism. He inscribes race and colonialism in history. The big controversial part of Black Orphis, ultimately, is that 
Seth describes the poems, but also describes this sort of idea of a, of a dialectic where on the one hand we would have white racism, white colonialism, and on the other we'd have an anti-racist racism. Um, and that the two eventually, in a third stage, would cancel themselves out and we would get to a general class consciousness, right? Looking from in sort of an ultimate universal liberation. That's, the, that's another main point here. And in fact, we can look at it as a repetition of what Aimé Césaire, so the great Martinican politician, but poet and, 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 and essayist, who set, set out this dialectic, which incorporated liberating black violence into a process of universal emancipation 15 years later in his play, Et les chiens se taisaient, and the dogs were silent about a descendant of slaves who rebelled against colonial authority. So Césaire's brand of universalism was present in Black Orpheus. In fact, I think Césaire played a role of intermediary between Sartre and another important interlocutor who was very much influenced by an écriture, France Fanon, which hopefully we'll look at, talk about later. How did Sartre and his political and cultural associates respond to the struggle for independence in Algeria that began in 1954? Well, progressively. First, I guess the one way to look at it is it started through les temps modernes. The war of independence of the Algerian people starts in the fall, officially, of 1954 and ends in the summer of 62. In the spring of 55, there is the editorial, there's a special issue on Algeria in les temps modernes, and the editorial is styled Algeria is not France, with emphasis on not. And this is a stinging rebuke and retort to the official words of the Minister of Interior at the time, François Mitterrand, who later becomes president of France, a social democrat, who said Algeria is France. And l'état moderne throughout the war becomes the space for the voice for Algerian independence to support the fighters, the militants, there's an FN leader, uh, who uh, Mustafa Lasheraf, who writes an article. At the time, I don't think it was public that he was one. It's a fantastic, the Litomodan echo chamber for anti-colonial struggle. Uh, they were the place, and so, of course, they got censored, I think, six times, meaning the journal got seized. It opened its columns, of course, to also Aimé Césaire, who forecasted the death of the colonies in a, in a very important article. It talked about ex protest about ex executions. So Sartre wrote a, a lot of editorials, a, a lot of articles. Uh, there was um, his prefaces on Henri Alleg's uh, book on torture, against torture, also uh, against executions of FLN or pro-FLN militants. So on that sense of things, the temps modernes was the forum. The journalist Henri Alleg wrote a famous book about torture in Algeria called The Question, with a preface by Sartre. In 2007, Alex spoke to Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! about his experience of waterboarding. It's a, a terrible, terrible impression of torture and of death, being near death. They just wanted me to, first of all, uh, say what I was doing in the moments I was illegal because I stopped, of course, going to the, to, to the newspaper because it was suppressed. So 
so I had to hide because I knew that I would be taken and sent to a concentration camp. So they wanted to know who were the people I met during that illegal period. What was the people that I had met and what they were doing? That's what they wanted. Did you tell me them? Is to denounce uh, my, my friends. And I refused to open my mouth to say a word about that. I wouldn't betray my friends. They didn't know much more about me. And that is what they wanted. And I didn't want to help them in any way uh, that would be uh, uh, possible. When the water came into your lungs, how did you remain conscious? How did you resist it? Well, they said to me, when you want to talk, you just move your fingers. Move your fingers. Of course, I was uh, strapped to the board, and uh, uh, the first time they uh, started that, uh, I, I didn't realize even that uh, I was moving des desperately my fingers. So I moved my fingers, and they shouted around me, so he's going to talk, he's going to talk. So they let me breathe, and as soon as I got a little breath again, I didn't answer, and I still refused. So they started again. They say he's, uh, he's making a joke out of us. So they gave me very heavy blows on my chest and uh, on my belly to make me get the, up the water of my lungs and of my, my, my body. And they started again afterwards. Alec went on to mention one clear difference between France in the 1950s and America today. Politicians no longer try to conceal their involvement in waterboarding and other forms of torture. Former Vice President Dick Cheney, unwavering in his support for the harsh interrogation tactics that happened on his watch, today ratcheted up his defense on Meet the Press. I'd do it again in a minute. Cheney argued the methods, including prolonged periods of waterboarding, were necessary in the wake of the September 11th attacks and insisted the procedures were not torture. Torture was what the uh, al-Qaeda terrorists did to 3,000 Americans on 9-11. There's no comparison between that and what we did with respect to enhanced interrogation. A fired-up Cheney called the report politically motivated, and that was his more tempered language. I won't use the word on your show. It may be family. It's, it's a crock. It's not true. And he disputed the report's claim that the interrogation tactics provided no credible information. Absolutely All of not. this information in here, no seed of doubt that whether this worked or not. It worked. It absolutely did work. For Sartre himself, he publishes um, his first article, I think it's in 56, it's Le Colonialisme est un système. So colonialism is a system. And here, he, this is, again, 56 is an important moment because it's when the French government really pushes, along with the communists, for war against the Algerian. And in this very famous article, which is, in fact, the speech he gave in January 56, he speaks of the, the nitty-gritty, the, the specific reality 
of French colonialism, he gives numbers in terms of wealth, in terms of land, the seizing of land by the French government against, you know, from the Algerians, uh, the riches in terms of just sheer numbers. He talks about how Algerian agriculture was really destroyed. All the wheat cultivation was, was removed and that cultivation gave rise to making wine, which of course Muslims don't drink. And this was all for export. So this is a this is a very important moment, and it's the moment also of his of his break with the Communist Party. He also signed in the Manifesto of the 121, and this is 121 intellectuals and public figures who support the French soldiers' right to not serve, uh, the refusal to join the army or to desert having joined the army, and he explicitly wishes for the defeat of the French army here. That's a that's a crucial date in the struggle for independence. And many people who signed that petition, some journalists went to jail for two, three weeks, and a lot of academics and um, state employees were demoted, lost their pension, and there was a fight there as well. His articles, and so he wrote a number of articles, really connected the economic in- imperatives behind the colonial project. And the, the rhetoric just kept amping up, as it were, as the intensity of the combats were. And he took to, to task the French hypocrisy uh, in some sort of very, very famous passages. Uh, one of them I want to quote. He says, we as French people must face up to that unexpected spectacle, the striptease of our humanism. Here it is, completely naked and not beautiful. It was nothing but an illusory ideology the exquisite justification for pillage, its tenderness and affection sanctioned our acts of aggression. And, and he, he speaks to the readers as well. He speaks to people who don't want to pick, to choose sides. And he says, you know very well we're the exploiters. You know very well that we took the gold and the metals and the oil of countries, not without excellent results, palaces, cathedrals, industrial capitals, and then whenever crisis threatened, the colonial markets were to cushion or deflect it. So a real commitment here. And yeah, so it, it, a very strong commitment in Les Modernes himself. It also culminates when he defines himself as a suitcase carrier, which means that there was a, a network, an underground network of intellectuals or citizens who worked with the FLN to help them transport weapons, transport you know, funds, communications, and Sartre dared the French government to arrest him. He was also a witness at many trials defending those suitcase carriers. He demonstrated, he was uh, at many demonstrations, demonstrations after the massacres of October 1961. He demonstrated in Charonne, at the Metro Charonne, to, and was really publicly present in an extremely offensive, in, in a sense, aggressive way. Now, this, of course, in the end, was a great risk to his life. He was the target of two assassination attempts, but he pursued it and he continued. Uh, this also very much influenced his writings and the critique of dialectical reason came out of, of as well as of his struggles for the Algerian people. In that wider context, what was the relationship between Sartre and Franz Fanon, whose own work was inseparable from the struggle for Algerian independence? Well, the connection with with Sartre between Sartre and Fanon at first, you know, can seem a, a little tricky because Fanon 
criticized Black Orpheus. It's often cited in, in his first book, Black Skins, White Masks. He criticizes South because there's the inclusion of negritude in a universal dialectic as sort of a, a negative, you know, a stage that's going to be that's going to be transcended. By doing so, the French writer had relegated the experience of being black in many French colonies to the status of a uh, destined to quickly give way to another. So Fanon says that Sartre's Hegelian scheme ignored, obliterated experience and individuality in favor of the universal. And he's saying, you know, you, I did not create meaning for myself. The meaning was already there, waiting. However, Fanon, even in his critique of Black Orpheus, does not close the door completely to a universal future. He ultimately shares Sartre's objective. Uh, there's a famous quote at the end of Black Skin, White Masks, where he speaks of, uh, I'll just quote it, it's the crippled soldier from the Pacific tells my brother, get used to your color the way I get used to my stump. We are both casualties. And Fanon says, with all my being, I refuse to accept this amputation. I feel my soul as vast as the world, truly as soul, as deep as the deepest of rivers. My chest has the power to expand to infinity. So I think Fanon in the end share more than the final goal of universalism. They're both preoccupied with how to transform empirical grievances into a worldwide struggle, and their dialogue is concerned about how to go best about it. And so here, if we look at the wretched of the earth or the damned of the earth, uh, which is Fanon's great treatise on colonialism, on the consequences of colonialism, and on how to fight it, as it were, Fennel writes that there is no question of the colonized competing with the colonists. They want to take his place. He describes colonialism as naked violence and that the response to this is greater violence. And this violence has a sort of therapeutic value. For Fennel, in fact, violence is redemptive, the counterbalance of the colonized person. And that ultimately the violence creates recognition of the former slave as a human. And that grows out of the master's fear. So this is not a mindless call to slaughter, but it's a reworking of Hegel's master-slave dialectic, uh, with the former slave purchasing recognition by armed resistance. And so it's a deepening and a complication of South's second stage in Black Orpheus. And South takes this, is influenced by this, and sort of synthesizes it in a provocative formulation in his preface to The Wretched of the Earth, where he says, to shoot down a European is to kill two birds with one stone, doing away with an oppressor and an oppressed at the same time. What remain is a dead man and a free man. The survivor, for the first time, feels a national soil under his feet. So this is, you know, of course, people have criticized South violently for this. I think the controversy hinges on the distinction between force and violence, where violence is, you know, this is, in this understanding, force is something that the state has the right to use, while violence is by definition illegal and is left to the underclass, the colonized. So in this sense, in the end, Sartre is completely influenced by Fanon and stops talking about universalism and really, in fact, criticizes universalism. He has a sort of retreat from the focus on universalism and is focused on the struggle. The struggle, the struggle of identity uh, linked to this colonial system, this is a great sort of a great interchange between the two and a great influence while still fighting for a universalism that is subversive in uh, not the universalism of colonialism and of the French state. 
What did Sarge and Leitant Modern have to say about the US war in Vietnam as it gradually escalated over the course of the 1960s? Well, Leitant Modern, as for the war in Algeria, becomes, again, the space for intellectuals to write against the Vietnam War, uh, to uh, to float ideas like the Russell Tribunal. Uh, this is a place where former U.S. officers, former U.S. soldiers can bear witness to the horrors of the war, where leaders and uh, militants who follow Ho Chi Minh also publish there. So L'Etat Modern carries on with sort of that, that courageous mission of being the place to challenge intellectually the war in Vietnam like no other space in the French press. Very much the same happened for Indochina and Algeria. For Sartre, really there is a hardening of his position, you know, right around the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. So Sartre was supposed to uh, go to a conference at Cornell to talk about his book on Flaubert and so on and so forth. And Sartre famously said, there is no longer any possibility of dialogue and refuses to go to the United States of America. He canceled the planned lecture as just the U.S. intensifies this moment. That's a, a crucial moment, and it creates a, a huge controversy as well. Then, in 1965, in a series of, of pleas, uh, the, it's called the, the Pleas for an Intellectual. Uh, Sartre defines the role of an intellectual as someone who's not only a specialist in their own field, but someone who's willing to risk his position as a specialist in their own field and go in other fields and take a stand take a stand on issues political that don't fit the status quo. And he is he is challenging what he calls organic intellectuals, intellectuals who are there to defend the interests of their social class. Uh, and he calls them, so these specialist intellectuals, he calls them false intellectuals. And the novelist Paul Nizan uh, used to call them guard dogs of the system. And of course, the example that Sartre gives is the pacifist intellectuals incarnated by Albert Camus. So, you know, he, he paraphrases their saying by saying our colonial methods are not what they should be, but there are too many inequalities on our overseas territory, but I'm against all violence. And here for Sartre, this is an approval of the violence. And it's approval of the, the, the ultimate violence, which is the violence of the colonized by their rulers, the overexploitation, unemployment, malnutrition. And so ultimately, for Sartre, a real genuine intellectual is someone who's neither a moralist nor an idealist and who's going to take a stance on the U.S. attack on Vietnam. That to him is the litmus test. So let me open the quote here for Sartre's definition of an intellectual. He knows that the only real peace in Vietnam will cost blood and tears he knows that it starts with the withdrawal of U.S. troops and the end of the bombings, therefore by the defeat of the USA. In other words, the nature of his contradictions obliges him to commit and implicate himself with all the conflicts of our times because they are all conflicts based on class, nationalism, or race, particular consequences of the oppression of the underprivileged by the dominant class. And so, all of a sudden, for Sartre, at that moment, uh, the Vietnam War is everything. It is the ultimate, the ultimate struggle. And in comes then the Russell Tribunal. And the Russell Tribunal is organized to the charges and the question is ultimately posed by this tribunal is, are the United States of America engaged in genocidal activity 
in Vietnam, a question posed by Lord Bertrand Russell. And it's on the mode of the Nuremberg tribunals, the Nuremberg trials who charge the Nazis for crimes against humanity, all the while the prosecutors you know, in America have a segregated army, in Australia, well, if you look at the, uh, uh, they don't consider Aboriginal people human beings, they're not on the census. And so here, there's this tribunal, it was set to be, to start in Paris, and paradoxically legitimizing it, de Gaulle says you can't have this tribunal in France. It's not valid, because justice is really inseparable from the state. And so Sartre responds, well, that's a problem. Uh, if justice is an instrument of the state. So they have it in Denmark and then in Sweden or vice versa. And there are all sorts of of witnesses, people, Vietnamese people, U.S. soldiers, U.S. officials, and they come to to a conclusion. Uh, I think it takes it takes about a year and it's published. And it's in now the charge of genocide, I should add, it's based on the 1948 United Nations definition, which really basically only necessitates intent. So it's a, a broad charge, and, and it's a lower standard than proving actually proving genocide if you're looking to prove intent. And, of course, a lot of these allegations of massacres later on uh, with the My Lai massacres and the reporting of Cy Hirsch come to be true and, and shown where entire villages and, and people are massacred systematically. And then, of course, the bombings uh, ordered uh, or supervised, uh, authorized by Kissinger. All this sort of uh, proves Sat's point and uh, Russell's point uh, later after Sat's verdict. And Sat's verdict comes out in the form of a book uh, called On Genocide. And that also was a, a huge scandal. And the, the, the way uh, Sartre sort of finally, uh, his closing summation is, is crucial here. He says finally that um, we must show solidarity with the Vietnamese people because their fight is ours. Because it's the fight against American hegemony, Vietnam fights for us. The group which the United States wants to intimidate and terrorize by way of the Vietnamese nation is the human group in its entirety. So Sartre here, again, makes Vietnam the defining conflict of post-World War II, and he's himself front and center. In 1974, Peter Davis and Bert Schneider produced a remarkable documentary about the Vietnam War called Hearts and Minds. The following clip comes from an interview with a veteran who came to believe that the war was profoundly immoral. I didn't drop napalm, but I dropped other things just as bad. I dropped CBUs, which can't destroy anything. It's meant for people. It's an anti-personnel weapon. We used to drop canister upon canister of these things with 200 tumbling little little balls in there about this big around with something like 600 pellets in each ball that would blow out as soon as they hit the ground uh, and shred people to pieces. They couldn't be gotten out in many cases. People would suffer. They would, they would live, but they would suffer, you know, then often they would die afterwards. And this would cause people to have to take care of them, you know. But I look at my children now, and uh, I don't know what would happen if, uh, uh, what I would think about if someone napalmed. I think Americans have tried We've all tried very hard to escape what we've learned in Vietnam, to not come to the, net, the logical conclusions of what, what's happened there. You know, the military does the same thing. You know, they don't realize that uh, 
people fighting for their own freedom uh, are not going to be uh, stopped by just changing your tactics, you know, and adding a little more sophisticated technology over here, improving the tactics we used last time, not making quite the same mistakes. Uh, you know, I think history operates a little different than that, and I think uh, that, that those kind of forces uh, are not going to be stopped. I think Americans have worked extremely hard not to see uh, the criminality uh, that their officials and their policymakers uh, have exhibited. When Davis and Schneider won the Oscar for Best Documentary in 1975, they enraged Hollywood conservatives like John Wayne by reading a message from the Provisional Revolutionary Government of Vietnam. Thank you so much. It is ironic that we are here uh, at a time just before Vietnam is about to be liberated. I will now read a short wire that I have been asked to read by the Vietnamese people. It is sent by Ambassador Dinh Ba Thi, who is the chief of the Provisional Revolutionary Government's delegation to Paris, the Paris political talks. It says, please transmit to all our friends in America our recognition of all that they have done on behalf of peace and for the application of the Paris Accords on Vietnam. These actions serve the legitimate interest of the American people and the Vietnamese people. Greetings of friendship to all the American people. Thank you very much. Le Tom Modern published a famous and celebrated special issue after the Six-Day War between Israel and the Arab states in 1967. What was the significance of that for the debate in France and outside France as well about Israel? Well, to answer that question, we have to look, look back a little bit at Sartre and the influence of the German occupation, of the Holocaust, and on him in his intellectual development. I mean, his first big, great text on institutional racism, if you like, on a form of racism, was the anti-Semite and Jew, Réflexion sur la question juive, which, which came out, I think, in 47. And so for Sartre, for the longest time, I would say up until perhaps the intervention, the support uh, of Israel during the Suez Canal in the, the invasion of Egypt by England and France, Israel was a place for refugees, for the Jewish people who had been, um, who were uh, oppressed and attacked and, and, and killed on a huge scale. And so they, they went to Israel. And so that was what Israel represented. Uh, and at the same time, of course, there was South's continued commitment against colonialism. Uh, he was he was committed against colonialism, of course, alongside Algeria, but also in 51, uh, alongside the Moroccan militants. He supported independence movements in Tunisia as well. So he said in an interview, I think, for an Egyptian newspaper in 1966, I'm torn between uh, opposing friendships. And this, this sense of being completely divided, completely torn, leads him to want to, um, to create this huge issue and this issue of L'Etat Moderne, which ends up coming out, right? And it comes out, it's about a thousand pages. So it's massive. And it has broadly, it's broadly divided in two parts. So, yeah, Israeli intellectuals and Arab intellectuals who discuss the issue of, of Palestine in Israel. 
And the idea is to try to foster a dialogue between Arabs and Israelis and to prepare for this issue. Sat tours the region, Egypt. He meets Nasser. He goes to Lebanon. He goes to Syria. He goes to Israel. He goes to Palestinian refugee camps. And it's a, a very difficult time for him. In Israel, he refuses to meet uh, members of the military, uh, members of the right-wing uh, political parties. I mean, he meets the president, he meets the left. Ultimately, this is Sartre's position. Sartre is for the existence of the state of Israel, but he also wants a legitimate state and a sovereignty for Palestine. And so that enrages both sides, ultimately. And it really puts him in a very difficult position, even within his own group. Uh, Claude Lanzmann, who is a uh, also publishes in Les Temps Modernes at the time, was very close to Simone de Beauvoir, sort of leaves in the middle of the trip. And it's very, very difficult for Sartre at that moment. War in the Middle East. Israeli forces drive spearheads across the Sinai Peninsula. This American newsreel depicted the Six-Day War as an unqualified triumph for Israel, which was the general perception at the time. Bank of the Jordan River and occupying the old city of Jerusalem. Revealingly, it doesn't even mention the Palestinians in the newly occupied territories. The Arab Air Force was destroyed on the ground in air raids on 25 bases in three countries, Egypt, Jordan and Syria. Israel's new defense minister, General Moshe Dayan, hero of the 1956 Sinai campaign, was instrumental in mapping his nation's battle plan. The sudden swiftness of the Israeli army crushed UAR forces with a combined air and ground one-two punch. Egypt's charges that U.S. and British air units aided Israel are vigorously denied, while diplomatic relations are broken. Now, also, the irony is that this issue comes out uh, right after the Six-Day War, right? Everything was written before. He writes um, an, an editorial for the issue, which is called For Truth. And there he just, you know, he doesn't really take a stand. He doesn't take a stand one way or the other. And then there is a petition that comes out, again, right before the Six-Day War. And this is all quite important because this petition comes out in France. It's uh, French left-wing intellectuals who say in it, uh, we don't want to um, to equate Israel with U.S. imperialism, and that we still think that Israel should have a right to exist. And Sat signs that petition. And then right after that, let's say a week after, the Six-Day War starts. Now, none of what Sartre does there is an endorsement of the war in, in any way, shape or form. But this creates a huge break. Um, and Sartre's, how can I say this, Sartre's prestige in the Arab world evaporates or certainly is on a huge downward um, trajectory, with perhaps the exception of the Maghreb, of Algeria, of Morocco and Tunisia. Um, what does it do in the left? Well, it's, it's a fracture. It's a fracture in the French left. And to this day, Sartre is attacked by certain segments of the hard left for not uh, being supportive enough of Palestine. But I think that ultimately, if we look at what uh, Sartre writes and says, he is for the existence of Israel, but he never backs down on his belief in rights for Palestinians. And so I think, I, I really think this question is important because it, it helps us clear the record. But Sartre was torn, um, but he wanted to be able to be uh, in favor of both sides. Uh, that's really ultimately his positions with a lot of development later in the 70s. But I think his, his, his stances in the 1970s have to be taken with a pinch of salt. 
uh, as Simone de Beauvoir would say. What is the current state of public discourse in France about its colonial history? And where do you think Sartre and the legacy of Sartre fits into that debate? I think the, the way to, um, to start this, uh, this discussion, this, this, the answer, is to see what Sartre said right after the war. Right after the war of independence, right after Algeria wins. And he says, open quote, it must be said that joy is out of place. For seven years, France has been a mad dog dragging a saucepan to its tail, every day becoming a little more terrified at its own din. Today, no one is unaware that we, France, have ruined, starved, and massacred a nation of poor people to bring them to their knees. They remain standing. But at what price? While the delegations were putting on an end to the business of war, 2,400,000 Algerians remained in the slow death camps. We have killed more than a million of them. After seven years, Algeria must start from scratch. First of all, win the peace and then hang on with the greatest of difficulty to the poverty we have created. That will be our parting gift. And so here, I'm, I'm closing the quote here. And so Sartre really, ultimately, this quote can be interpreted as a call for a reckoning and a remembrance of the state of things. Of course, this is exactly the opposite of what happened. The political landscape today with respect to the discourse in France with respect to colonial history is a blend of denial and manipulation. Briefly, examples, the war of Algerian independence was not officially considered a war until 1999. In 2005, the French government, the French parliament, passed a law to say that colonialism was by and large beneficial to the colonized people. Um, the massacres that took place in the 17th of October, 1961, this is, there was a demonstration against a curfew by Algerians in the streets of Paris, and people, uh, Algerians were massacred, hundreds were thrown into the River Seine, hung, and then they were all parked into a stadium. This was completely absent from French history books, only appeared in fiction in the 80s and 90s, and there was a commemoration by François Hollande where he didn't point to the police as the culprits. And lately, lately, a commemoration last October by Macron, which didn't apologize in any way, shape, or form for the crimes of the French state. So I think that we're in a, in a very uh, strange place. The, the latest, I think, perhaps, uh, event, as it were, is uh, Macron, uh, who is our current president, who is instrumentalizing uh, the the lack of memory and the ignorance of of France. So what does he do? This is, you know, we're at a time of election in France. So he has a public row with Algeria because he invited at the Elysee Palace descendants of settler colonialists and their indigenous allies. And during this conference, he questioned, he basically said that there was no Algerian nation before France invaded Algeria in 1830. You know, this is a far-right colonialist talking point. Um, and this is a way to solidify his extreme right base, who are basically, uh, or try to steal the extreme right base of the National Front 
and of which is called the Renouveau National, the RN, and of course also Zemmour. And Zemmour is this character, this, this editorialist who is now neck and neck with Marine Le Pen and is himself a pied noir and was born in Algeria. So there's that aspect as well. And this is, of course, uh, to be able to speak uh, these things, you have to sort of deny Sartre. But more crucially, I think we can say that today France is still objectively an imperial power. Its control of former colonies is more subtle than before decolonization, but not by much. We have the example of France-Afrique. Almost every single former French colony in Africa has a main trading partner, and that's France. Its port, its infrastructure, mostly owned by French companies, though China is, is also looming in the background. Crucially, the currency of most former French colonies in Western Africa is controlled by the Bank of France. It's called the ECO, indexed on the euro. So here, this is an ongoing situation, very much denounced by as a danger or something that happened by Fanon himself, by Sartre himself, by Guevara and his writing. Yet virtually all the French intellectual class today turns a blind eye to the situation. And the condition of possibility of this state of denial that allows this continued exploitation of former colonies is certainly to vilify the greatest opponent, intellectual opponent, to French colonialism and neocolonialism, and that's Sartre. He, he was, you know, the, obviously the greatest challenger of that system and the economic system that was that was behind it. So we could add, we could conclude by saying in the mainstream political and cultural fields in France today, there's a refusal to condemn neo, condemn colonialism, denial of neocolonialism, and in this ideological context, Sartre cannot be widely celebrated for his political or philosophical writings in 21st century France. So he can't be completely ignored. So you're going to have books on, you know, his memoir, I mean, his biography, there are entire books on him playing the piano and so on and so forth. But what we got to remember is that uh, Sartre's unfailing attempts to connect race and colonialism make it impossible to claim him while Salt simultaneously reneging on a commitment to radical social change. And that's virtually the whole of the French intellectual class and French politicians of the French Socialist Party who have done that since 1968. Today, we still have these guard dogs of the system, and they're committed to a new world liberal order, and therefore, they must reject Jean-Paul Sartre. Many thanks to Oliver Gloag for that account of Sartre and his engagement with colonial questions. If you'd like to know more, you could start with Oliver's article for Jacobin, Jean-Paul Sartre took a stand against empire. 